Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Where's This Going? I'm Felix Levine, and today we have another great episode. But first, I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. All of U.S. Wellness Meats, including beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products, are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. Grass-fed and pasture-raised meats are loaded with good nutrition like conjugated linoleic acid, also known as CLA, omega-3 amino acids, and a host of vitamins and minerals. CLA is a cancer fighter, muscle builder, and supports immune functions among many other health benefits. Omega-3s, as we know, are great anti-inflammatories. They specialize in a variety of special diets and have hundreds of paleo, keto, whole 30, sugar-free, and AIP friendly foods. I encourage you to know your food and know your farmer. Their food and farms have been featured in numerous major publications, best-selling cookbooks, and broadcasts, including the New York Times, Chicago Herald, Paleo Magazine, and many, many others. They ship anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. Use promo code PODCAST for 15% off store-wide savings at uswellnessmeats.com. Go do it. And another big thank you to our sponsor, Infinite CBD. Use promo code WTG10 and receive 10% off all your favorite products at infinitecbd.com. My guests today are a power couple, Eric and Yasmin Anders. Eric Anders is a former linebacker for the University of Alabama and helped them win the 2009 National Championship game against Texas with a beautiful game-sealing forced fumble strip sack tackle. He is now a successful mixed martial artist. He was the Legacy Fighting Alliance's middleweight champion and now is fighting for the UFC. He has a bout on June 29th, so... I am very happy to have him in the studio today. And we have his lovely wife, Yasmin Anders, who is an IFBB bodybuilder as well as a second language teacher. And she herself speaks more than five different languages. And although she was a little bit on short notice, I'm super happy to have both of them in the studio today. Let's get it rolling. Beautiful. So I'm here today with Eric and Yasmin Anders. Thank you both for being here. I appreciate you having us, man. We're in the uh, little outskirts of Anaheim, small studio, um, but we made it. So first I want to kind of get into it. Unexpected guest, Yasmin, but I'm very happy that you're here. And so I kind of want to start, Eric, with childhood, kind of go chronologically. Um, I read that you were born on a Air Force Base in the Philippines. Yeah, so my mom was in the Air Force. So uh, man, my oldest brother was born in uh, Travis Air Force Base in California. Uh, there's four of us. My next oldest brother was born in uh, Madrid and uh, Spain. And then me and my little brother were both born in uh, 
uh, the Philippines. From the Philippines, we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we're there for about five years. Uh, so I was like two when we moved. Like people always ask me, it's like, oh, so are you Filipino? Can you speak uh, Tagalog? Or they'll say Filipino, not knowing like Tagalog is the the native language, what you call the language there. And uh, I tried to get a job with the government, and uh, they didn't give me my security clearance because I, I was born in the Philippines. And so I had to go in there, and they were like, I had to speak to an investigator, and they were like, uh, do you own any land? Do you know any foreign national? I'm just like, lady. I was two years old. I apologize for my mother serving this country, but no, I don't even speak the language. I don't own any land. I don't have any, I don't know anybody in the Philippines. And I go, okay. And then they gave me my security clearance. And um, uh, we lived in New Mexico for about five years and we moved to Japan, uh, which was real cool. And uh, we were there for about three years. Moved to Prattville, Alabama, where my mom attended the uh, Air War College in Montgomery. Uh, moved to Maryland, and then uh, I went to high school in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And then how long did your mom serve? Uh, she was in 26 years, I believe. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So she retired as a full bird colonel, which, uh, you know, pat on the back to Mama Dukes, man. Not a lot of people stay in that long or achieve that. And then so you're in San Antonio for high school. Yep. And so kind of, you know, for people that, are not familiar with Eric, football player, UFC fighter now. How do you first kind of get into football? Um, man, you know, my oldest brother, you know, he was like my hero growing up. You know, he's about five years older than me, and everything that he did, I wanted to do. And, uh, man, he started playing football, and uh, my parents were a little reluctant at first uh, just because, you know, they didn't want their kids getting hurt or whatever. And uh, finally they talked him into it, so he started playing and so I was like, Shh. I mean, he's playing. I want to play, too. So then the kind of trickled down effect. The, the next brother started playing. Then uh, I started when I was about seven years old playing football. And it was one of those things. Like a lot of people with me, they think I'm like a, a natural athlete. But to me, a natural athlete is someone who can play any sport with little practice and can just pick it up and do it. I'm not that way. Like I could probably play any sport, but I'm going to have to practice really hard and try really hard to be good. Um, so football, I just, you know, I liked it. So, uh, I played a lot of sports growing up, but football was just like, I liked the, the physicality of it, you know? Uh, so I just wanted to do it, liked it. My older brother played, so, you know, I wanted to do it. Did you want to make a career out of it? Or you just kind of wanted to play in the beginning? Um, you know, I, I, you know, when I was seven, I just wanted to play. You know, I just, I was like, oh, I can hit somebody and not get in trouble. Fucking sign me up, dude. That sounds like fun. Um, and then, you know, the more success uh, you have with things, I think the more you want to do it, uh, if that makes sense. Like, oh, man, I'm pretty good, you know, and I like it, and I like training. I like There was no training back then. It was just you play the season, and you fucking go play another sport. Now it's like, uh, you know, kids play the same sport year-round. Uh, now they have like seven-on-seven seven leagues and, and stuff like that in the spring and summertime, which we didn't have, so... You know, uh, it was cool. You know, I'd play football for three months then, you know, go wrestle or, you know, play soccer, or, you know, do something every season. Um, but I got really good really quick, and I was always a bigger dude. So, you know, football is one of those uh, sports where it doesn't hurt to be big or to, to be strong or have size or whatever. So, you know, I was just able to do it, and, uh, you know, I had the, the, you know, the stature for it as well.
And at what point did you realize, at what point did you start getting recruited? And what kind of, like in high school, did you realize like, oh shit, like I might play at a, a legitimate top tier program? Man, you know, my, my recruiting story is a little bit different from most of the guys who, you know, play college ball. And I wasn't really recruited because I was, you know, 6'1", 6'2", about, you know, 195, 200 pounds playing defensive line, excuse me, uh, defensive end and, you know, three technique in Texas 5A football. You know, that's, a, you know, it's about as big as football gets, especially in Texas. And, um, man, there aren't a whole lot of guys that are lining up in Division One football that are 6'2", 200 pounds, you right. know. So, um, you know, I played – and, uh, man, ever since I was probably, like, in middle school, I was like, man, I want to play in the NFL. I thought I was going to play for 15 years and be a Hall of Famer, all this other good stuff. Um, but I wasn't getting recruited a whole lot in high school just because of my size. And, you know, there weren't a lot, a whole lot of athletes coming out of my high school. And I think it's a lot easier when there's, you know, several guys that go before you. It's like, okay, this is a hot spot. Like, there's a high school in Tallahassee, Florida called Gobby, which uh, a guy that I played football with in college, man, they had 13 people go Division One off his team his senior year. That's a shitload. Yeah. You know, there was like three uh, that went D- Division One uh, out of my school, and one was to Baylor, the other was to Rice. So it's not like uh, a whole lot, you know, it's not like super big. You know, these guys are going to like Florida, Miami, Florida State, Alabama, you know, big Division One school, so... You know, um, I think the first school to offer me was Memphis. Uh, So I was like, cool. You know, I got to offer a fucking Conference USA, but whatever, man. I'll go ball out, do my thing. Uh, Then Texas Tech, um, which, you know, Big big 12's bigger than Conference USA. Uh, But they don't play any defense in the Big 12. So Mm -hmm. I was like, man, I'm going to go because it's, you know, it's whatever. Then Ole Miss came. So I was like, hell yeah, SEC. Wasn't a fan of... You know Mississippi, and you know their their uh, their uh, their mascot was a plantation owner, and they, they screamed "The South Shall Rise Again" in the end of their fight song. Which, you know, being a black guy in the South, that's not really what you want to hear. But whatever, I just wanted to take advantage of my opportunity. And then uh, Alabama came, and I was like, mm, Alabama's not much better than Mississippi, but, you know, I kind of feel racist when I say the word Mississippi, so I was like, let's go with Alabama. And, uh, man, it's, it's kind of funny because my after the football season ended my senior year, I had zero offers. So I sat down, I made my own highlight tape uh, out of the film that season, uh, and I sent my highlight tape to every single uh, FBS school, all 125, uh, looked up the address, sent it, made 125 copies of VHS. And uh, I'm not even sure if they were watching VHS at that point, but that's all I had. So I uh, made 125 copies of this tape, sent them to every single school, didn't hear a word back uh, except from other, those other schools. And uh, the only reason why I got offered at Bama is because one of the uh, uh, assistant coaches in my high school was college roommates with the offensive line coach at the time, Bob Conley. And, uh, you know, they have these summer camps for, for kids, and I didn't even realize that this is how these kids are getting recruited because they go to these camps, they run a 40. It's kind of like a combine. They play seven-on-seven. Seven, they do individual drills. And this is where these colleges first lay eyes on these kids. And uh, so, he, he, you know, he went to the camp, and, 
you know, told the coach and Mike Shula was the coach at the time. He was like, you know, you know, it's a really good kid, hard worker. Worst case scenario, he's going to be a great special teams player for you. And I think they just kind of gave him the thumbs up and, you know, appreciate it, boss. But one of their top recruits didn't uh, didn't qualify academically. So, like, now they have this open scholarship. There's two weeks before the uh, two-a-day start. Everybody else is signed, going to wherever they're going, except your boy. Yeah. So they bring me out on the on the visit. And, uh, man, I've been working my ass off all summer. I, was, I didn't even know. I think I was more ignorant to how the recruiting process worked. I just felt like I had until the season started to get a scholarship. So, man, I kept working out, you know, kept training, you know. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I lied. You know, I was probably like 200 pounds, 205 max. But I'm walking around with Mike Shula, and he's like, man, how much do you weigh? I'm like, man, I'm 215, man. And he was like, okay, we're going to go get on the scale. And if you're a pound under 215, we're not going to offer you. So, so man, you. my soul just, my heart just stopped and shattered and crumbled. And uh, so I was like, all right. So I went and got on the scale, and the scale was broke. So that, so it didn't work. So, like, these stars aligned for me to go to Alabama. Like, there was really no other place for me to go. I just feel like that was in the universe for me to go uh, to the University of Alabama. And they offered me uh, on my official visit. I signed, and, uh, you know, the guys were like, man, do you want to go out? Uh, I was like, nah, player, I'm straight. You know, I got my scholarship. I'm, I'm. So I went home uh, for about a week, and then uh, – my mom bought me this trunk for my for my clothes. I think I had one pair of shoes uh, and, and like two pair of shorts, like a couple shirts, not a whole lot. And she dropped me off to the airport on her way to work, and I was like, "Bye, Eric," you know that kind of thing. So uh, that that's how I got to Alabama. And so then, what was your time like? Because I know so Shula was there when you first uh, got there in '06, and then '05, '05, yeah, and then Sabin came a couple years later? Yeah, he came in 07. In 07. What was it like first meeting Saban and then kind of like the progression of your relationship as a player? And then like, do you still, are you still in contact with him now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because in high school, you know, the whole thing was Eric, go get the ball or everybody go get the ball. Like, you know, you had your responsibilities on defense. Otherwise, they're going to score a touchdown every time. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was just like, man, go go get the guy. So I had, like, no, like, real responsibility, didn't really know the X's and O's, and I thought that that's what college would be like, man, just go get the guy with the ball. Quickly did I learn that, no, dude, if you're supposed to be over here, be over here. If you're, don't go farming somebody else's land is what they used to always say. So uh, I had to, like, really – like, learn the X's and O's, which was difficult because my whole life, like, even through high school, it's just like, go tackle the guy with the ball or, you know, go get him or whatever. So, um, you know, I had to, like, take a step back, learn the X's and O's, learn how to watch film, uh, and, like, learn how to be a football player instead of an athlete, uh, just going and getting the ball kind of thing. And, uh, man, you know, it's, it's crazy, the, the contrast between Shula and Saban because, Shula was a soft guy who tried to act hard, and the players saw through his, you know, his fake persona. Like he would cuss and apologize to the team for cussing. I was like, man, everybody in this locker room cusses. Everybody's been cussed at. There's there's nothing you can say worse than what my parents have said to me. You know, so it's cool, dude. You don't have to apologize. 
But man, he would just run these, you know, these these crazy practices. Like we were doing Oklahoma drills and tackling and the angle tackling drills. And then so by the time the game comes, man, how are you supposed to win if everybody, if all the starters are hurt and banged up and can't play it 100%? Mm. You know, and he'd like restart practice and, you know, it was just crazy. No, I don't think a whole lot. Of, I think he's a great coach. I like Mike Shula. Like he's a better coordinator than he is a head coach. And uh, I just think that a lot of players didn't respect him. He wouldn't enforce rules. There were guys with like 13 failed drug tests. They didn't even know they failed the drug test. You know, so he was having people take drug tests and then people would fail and there'd be no consequence. There was no consequence, the guy's missing class. So, you know, it's a trickle down effect, you know, so there's no um, discipline anywhere. Guys are out of position on the field, you know, but they're not doing what they're supposed to do off the field. And he had this thing where like the senior started no matter what. So there was like no competition and, um, so if you're an underclassman, you know you're not playing. So why should I practice hard? Right. Why should I watch film? Why should I lift more weights? Why should I do anything? I'll just wait my turn and, you know, kind of thing. So when shoot when Saban got there, man, he flipped the script all the way around. You know, it didn't matter if you were a freshman or a senior. Uh, everybody's here to compete for a starting spot. And just because you started last week don't mean you starting this week. And guys would miss class and they'd get reprimanded. And he had a point system. If you got up to X amount of points – uh, you couldn't play or you'd be suspended or, you know, there'd be some kind of punishment. Uh, if you failed the drug test, he would put you in, like, a drug education uh, class and you'd have to do, like, six months of continuing education. Uh, if you failed two, you had to start all over. If you failed three, he put you in a 21-day inpatient uh, facility. This is all things that nobody knows, really, right? I mean, he kept, like, were there players that actually did that? Oh, yeah, man, there's a lot of, not I don't know, not a lot, but... There were quite a few players that had to go to the 21-day uh, inpatient. And so, you know, so now you see guys be like, shit, he's a senior, but he's not a star, and he lost his, star, his, 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 his job to a sophomore or a junior. So now what does that do? The freshmen are licking their chops, be like, shit, if I go out here and, and ball out and practice, and then when, you know, because Bama, you know, we get up by a lot. Yeah. You know, so the, the younger guys get chances to play. So I go out here and ball out and practice. You know, they see that I'm working hard. I get my chance in the game and go ball out. Shit, I can get more playing time, you know, in crunch time when the game is close, when everybody wants to play. No one wants to play the last two minutes of a 45 to nothing game. Yeah, It's embarrassing. It's like, okay, it's your turn to go play. That means you suck. And, you know, that guy's so much better than you. We're going to keep him in to the last two minutes of the game. So nobody wants that mop-up duty. So when, when he came in, and then his practices ran a lot smoother. We only went full pads like one or two days a week, and it was minimal contact at that because he understood, you know, I need my studs to be 100% so that they can perform on uh, on Saturday. And now it's to the point where if you go play for Saban and give him three years of your life, it's going to suck. You're not going to like it, especially a lot of these kids. They come from, you know, like uh, – you know, they probably may not have the best socioeconomical background. Uh, they probably come from places where they're the best athlete on the field. Um, so they're not very disciplined, and, you know, is what I'm trying to get across. So you come give Nick Saban three years of your life, you're going to get a shot at the NFL. You're going to get a shot to be a millionaire. You're going to have a shot to have a successful NFL career. 
And, man, let's be honest, man. A lot of these kids, they're not coming to go get an economics degree. Education <laughs> wasn't on my mind at all when I was at Bama. You know, I, I did get my degree. I got a degree uh, just to kind of, like, make my parents happy because they were under the impression that you got to get a degree, you got to get a degree, you got to get a degree kind of thing. But the NFL was what was on my mind, and that's where I wanted to get. And I was going to do everything in my power to get there. So, uh didn't work out for me that way, and uh, my degree is not really worth much. But it did open up doors to get jobs because no one wants to hire anybody with, like, a high school education. And I don't, I don't think that I was educated any more in college than I was in high school. Like, I, you know, maybe, like, higher math, but, you know, I was taking, like, women's studies classes, you know, uh, American literature before 1865, which— you know, I really didn't give a shit what Sylvia Plath had going on in the bell jar, you know what I mean? So there's a bunch of stupid classes that I was taking. I felt, you know, uh, if it wasn't for football, I would have wasted my time in college. Um, so, you know. Do you have a favorite Nick Saban story? Uh, man, you know, uh, Nick Saban, he, uh, he cusses a lot. and He don't let you off the hook. You know, uh, what, there was one time this guy named uh, uh, Tyrone King, he uh, he blew a coverage in practice. He was a DB. And Coach Saban, he was telling him, he's like, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I guess he was having a bad day or whatever, and he was like, I got it. And then, man, I'm telling you, for the hour and a half, he walked behind Tyrone King. He's like, you got it. You got it. And he just, man, he just went off. And, like, he would go – coach somebody else and it man, it's amazing the man doesn't miss a beat he doesn't forget uh and he's, he's he was just on he would go coach and it would be quiet for you know 10 minutes at practice or whatever and then he would circle right back around and just get on his ass again and for a whole practice uh he was just on his ass and and this is the cool thing about Nick Saban I say that but if he thinks you're going to contribute to the team, he makes you see this, talk to this shrink who we call is the, the wizard. He's this old man with, you know, this stringy white hair that's all out. Uh, he he kind of looks like the uh, the guy from uh, Doc from uh, Back to the Future. Okay. You know, he's this old dude with white hair everywhere and a white beard. Turns out this dude used to be a POW uh, interrogator in Vietnam. So this dude really know how to get, like, deep down in there. And he learns... Uh, how to coach each individual player. So, like, if if you're my quarterback and I yell at you and then you start playing like shit, what good does that do for me to yell at you? Yeah. Or if she's a, a defensive player and I yell at her and it elevates her game, that's how I'm going to coach you. That's how I'm going to talk to you kind of thing. And I think that he doesn't get enough credit because he really uh, focuses on the mental part the mental aspect of the game. And I don't think that a lot of coaches, you know, go that far to go hire uh, uh, a shrink to, you know, kind of learn about your background. And, and then he goes and gives this report. He's like, oh, I can yell and cuss at Eric, and it's going to make him perform better. Or if I yell at Yasmin, she's going to play like shit. Yeah. So, you know, he's, he and he remembers that. And, you know, so he tailors his coaching style per player. And, uh, so obviously he felt like Tyrone King could, you know, handle this cussing and this yelling at. And uh, man, another one, and this is probably the funniest. I won't even say any names, but uh, Tyrone King's my my one of my good friends. So 
we all enjoy the story yeah. every time we see each other. But uh, man, he also has guys on diet, uh, goes and see dietitian, especially like the the linemen. Because I don't know if you know offensive and defensive linemen, man, these guys are lazy and they like to eat, you know. So uh, one guy was supposed to, like, he weighed, I don't know, we'll say 250. And uh, he's supposed to keep his weight between 240 and 240, 255 or whatever. Man, uh, they give everybody pizzas uh, after every practice, uh, after at the end, at the end of practice at, on two a days, like during the summer. Okay. And uh, but if you're overweight, if you're on this weight plan, you don't get the pizza. You get like a sandwich or a salad or you know whatever, something more healthy. But for me, I was smaller. I was on a catfish diet. I just ate everything, eat everything all the time, you know. <laughs> so, man, this dude put on ten pounds. This lineman overnight, he put on ten pounds. And man, <laughs> how does that even work? Man, I don't know, but he did it. He did it. He put on ten pounds overnight, and in front of everybody. And I'm making the next statement sound like an asshole, but uh, man, he was just like, just yelling. He's like, "How do you put on ten pounds overnight?" And he's like, "Man, I didn't eat anything. I only ate with it." He's like, "Bullshit! There are no <laughs> calories in the air." And man, he would just have these one-liners. They were just, man, he's like, you can't help but laugh at yeah. it. Like, even the dude getting cussed at, he's just, you know, laughs at it. Because, like, man, no calories in the air, man. This dude should have, like, a, he should do stand-up comedy, man. He's a funny Very dude. Cool. Yeah. Um, other question I have a little separate is um, there's a lot of debate with uh, student athletes being paid. And you being, like, a high-level student athlete when you were. What, do you have any thoughts on, on that? I mean, obviously probably like yeah i want to get paid but do you think student athletes in general should be paid i think so uh but maybe not like in terms of like a game check like they get in the nfl uh the university of alabama profits like 18 million dollars per home game wow. i think last year they made like 142 million dollars and the athletes see none of that and i get it that goes to like the coach's salary that goes to like um better facilities and things like that but what I think should happen is that you should get a trust. Like once you start eligibility, uh, you know, this trust, they put X amount of dollars. And I think the big issue is, you know, the guys at Alabama, uh, they generate so much more money. And like Louisiana Monroe, they don't produce as much money. So how, well, how do you balance that out? And I don't right. think you should. If I'm a top-tier athlete playing a top-tier program, I should get compensated as such. And if I'm not generating that much, you know, uh, it's unfortunate, but those are the cards that you were dealt. For whatever reason, you're not at Alabama. So why should you be getting paid what they get paid at Alabama? You know, even in the NFL, like the quarterbacks aren't paid the same. Yeah. You know, so what difference does it make how much who gets paid? But what I think they should do is they should have a trust. And they should give you a stipend that you can live on, pay your bills. Uh, and that's what they did when I was in school. We got $1,000 a month. I don't know if you've ever tried to live off a thousand dollars a month, but it's not possible. And uh, so, you got gas, cell phone, uh, light bill, rent, you know, things like that. So you get paid on the first. By the second, you ain't got but fifty cents left in your in your account. So it makes it difficult. Um, but I think you should have a trust that you know builds interest, and they deposit more money and more money. 
And then once your eligibility runs out, whether you declare for the draft or your four or five years is up, uh, here's your money, here's your start. Because a lot of them kids, they don't make it to the NFL. Right. So now, you know, I got this piece of shit degree that the school helped me get because we all know, like I said earlier, I'm not here to get an education. I'm here to play football, and everybody knows it. So, like, my degree is in health studies. Guess how many times I've used that? Zero. Yeah. So, uh, and they kind of, like, made me choose that degree. Like, I want to do kinesiology. The academic advisor was like, those classes are only offered during those times, during times of practice, and me being 18 and young and dumb. And I was like, all right, cool, health studies sounds great. And uh, when I was like a sophomore or junior, uh, I realized that that wasn't the truth. And uh, you go to change your major, but the NCAA says uh, every year you're in school, you have to have X amount of your degree completed. So by the time I go to try and change my degree, oh, guess what, Eric? You're not going to be eligible because now you won't have uh, 60% of your degree completed or whatever. So, uh, uh, you know, I think that since that's not, I'm not the only person in that situation, right. right? You know, a lot of these kids, like I said, they're not going there to get an education. One, I don't think college should be an issue, should be a thing. I think there should be like a developmental league uh, that I can go play in, like they do, like in other countries with soccer. Like well, they, they're tried, not they tried that new league. I don't know if you saw the the AAF. What kind of? Yeah, field? but all those those are, those are former college players. There is no like. From high school I see what you mean. to this developmental league to the NFL, there's just college to the NFL. So they're using uh, college has the developmental league, right? And they're making a lot of money, and the kids ain't seeing nothing. So I think once my eligibility is done, here's a check, or you can continue to leave it in there and let it grow because there are guys that are going to get make millions of dollars. So they've already had this trust that they started since they were 18. Now they get done playing when they're 25 or, you know, uh, the average, average NFL career is three years. So you get done when you're 22. By the time you're 25, you're done. But there are guys who play longer who have 10, 15-year careers. Now you have this trust that's been gathering interest for 20 years. So you're good. Um, but even the guys who don't make it, here's $50,000 or here's $100,000. You go blow it if you want to, because they don't teach you financial literacy. Yeah, that's not one of the classes you take. Right. You know, uh, unless you're an accountant. So, a lot of these guys, they got an uncle who, or a mom who, you know, like I said, not the best socioeconomics. And let me, they come out early, and uh, don't get drafted as high. So now they just lost millions of dollars that way. Um, I, I just think they should have a trust or get a check at the end of their thing. The school made this much money while you were in school. Right. Here's a percentage of that for all the kids who declare for the draft or run out of eligibility or something, just to give them like a head start or whatever because some of these kids, they don't have mom and dad that they can right. go move back home with. And some of these kids are from the hood, they're from the ghetto. They're not trying to go back in that direction. But, you know, like the regular college kids, probably not from that situation. So they can go back home. You know, they can go back in and live with mom and dad or who's probably paying for their school anyway. So, you know, the biggest uh, argument that I would get in with the general public is like, oh, why are you bitching? You get to go to school for free. I'm just like, no, I generate more money for this school than you'll ever pay in tuition. And I pay with my hide. Like I play with blood and sweat and my body. 
you know what I'm saying? You have parents that are paying for this or loans or grants or whatever. So, you know, if you look at it, I'm paying a lot more than you're paying. Uh, but, you know, people, they don't, they don't like to see that side of the argument. No, I, I think, I mean, I think what's really hard is for a lot of those football players, um, you know, you're right, not even at Alabama, best program in the country, you know, not all of them go to the NFL. It's like, like, do you, where do most of your teammates that maybe didn't go to the NFL, what are they, do you still keep in touch with them? Like, what are they up to in their post-life? Because you don't really hear about them after, you know? And I think it's kind of interesting, like, I think people should, I think there should be more programs to just, like, help those kids because they never, I mean, I'm sure you didn't have the same school schedule that a non-athlete did. Um, sure. So what, do you have any idea where? A, a, lot, a lot of them fall back into coaching because, okay. you know, like I said, they didn't go to school to get an education. So what is what they know? They know football. Right. So, okay, football didn't work out for me. I'm not the millionaire that I thought I would. Let me circle back and holler at Nick Saban for a coaching position. Or, you know, all these coaches, they go to Bama, coach there for two or three years, and they go get a head coaching or coordinator job. So a lot of these guys, once it doesn't work out in the NFL, but then the NCAA comes out with a bullshit rule that you have to be a um, – uh, you can only be a graduate assistant within seven years of graduating. All right, so what does that mean? I make it to the NFL, luckily – I played for five years. You know, no one knows what they want to do after they get done playing football because they didn't know that they, were gonna, they weren't going to play right. the next season. So, you know, they spend the next two years trying to get back in the league and maybe go to Canada or play arena ball. But now they've graduated over seven years. So now you can't go back to college because they won't let you be a graduate assistant. Or maybe it's five years or whatever. The window's not big enough uh, is, is the point I'm trying to get to. Mm-hmm. So now what do you do? You know, so, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know, man. I think I think it's kind of, you know, bullshit how the NCAA handles athletes and former athletes. Yeah. I was watching uh, this morning, actually, 2009 National Championship game. It's a good game. With, with, with your big game, I would say game ceiling tackle. Sure. Force fumble. For, for people that don't know, 2009, Alabama. Texas they national know. championship. They know. They know. <laughs> they know. 24-21, and then you come in. You didn't. He didn't even see you. Um, and that was. I mean, you had the most. I think it was like you had like seven tackles or something. Yeah. It's like a game high. Like, take me through that game. Take me before the game. Are you nervous? And then, like, once you make that tackle, you're on the biggest stage probably ever that one can really be on in this country at least. Sure. Um, so it, it's funny because, you know, you look at people on film and it's like, oh, man, that guy's not that big. But they gave us and the Texas players uh, passes to go to uh, Disneyland right here uh, at the same time. So everybody, you know, we were in our Bama jumpsuits and they were in their bright orange or burnt orange, uh, you know, jumpsuits or whatever. And I just remember walking past the offensive lineman. Man, these guys were like 6'8". 350, 360, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, he is, that is a huge human being. Um, but then once the game started, man, they were so slow. They weren't functionally strong. And I was like two, I think I played that game with like 220, 225. So they have like well over 100 pounds on me. And I just remember like locking up with them. I'm just like, man, this dude isn't strong at all. And uh, so we knew from the jump, like defense, we were going to be straight. You know, they they had a really good defense that year, too. Um, but uh, 
So our whole game plan was for Colt McCoy and to keep him in the pocket. And I think like in the first quarter, it was uh, they had first and goal from the three and had to settle from a field for a field goal. So we already knew what time it was, man. They're not going to score, and if they do score, it's only going to be three instead of seven points. And uh, so like I said, our whole game plan was for Colt McCoy because he was just running all over everybody, and uh, so we didn't want him to beat us with it with his feet, with his arm, which we didn't think he was capable of doing. He ends up getting hurt. Uh, and I'm glad that you brought this up because I'm from Texas and I have to have this conversation go every time it. I go home. Uh, was to keep Cole McCoy in the pocket. And uh, when he got hurt, we didn't know anything about Garrett Gilbert uh, and failed to make an adjustment to the fourth quarter of the game. But Garrett Gilbert was happier than a pig and shit to not have any pressure put on him. He was just standing back there in the pocket, boom, Shipley, boom, Shipley. And he was just, you know, picking us apart with Shipley. And then it finally dawned on us in the fourth quarter that, man, we should probably rush this dude because he's not even looking to run. You know, this dude has all the high school uh, quarterback uh, records, uh, pass yards, and, you know, things like that uh, in, in Texas high school history, which, man, guys like Matt Stafford uh, and guys like that have come out of Texas, man. So he's like in an elite league of high school quarterback. And uh, so once we started rushing him, he kind of like – fell apart and on that particular play it was probably the best game I played in college uh you know my yeah. whole career uh, I think I had like seven tackles four for loss uh batted ball uh sack forced fumble you know I played a really good game were you nervous game. before the game Nah, not at all I, mean, I just the whole it was where you could feel the vibe in the locker room and at practice the whole week everybody was just on the same page and you know, that was probably the best game we played defensively, collectively, as as a team. And um man, you could just feel it in the in the air and the atmosphere in the locker room during practice, after practice, after the game. Everybody was just like a one single celled organism on defense. We really don't meet with offense like that, uh, too much. You know, we like uh, run uh run plays against our offense and stuff, uh, but you know, the defense usually shut shit down because, like, they're running the same plays against us. Uh, so we kind of know what's coming anyway. So, but, man, it was just the vibe and, and, and the chemistry before the game and then during the game and then that, that first and goal when they couldn't score, that was huge. And uh, Colt McCoy gets hurt, which, you know, everybody knew that he really didn't get hurt. He was making a business decision. You know, he was like, man, I'm not taking this shit for the next, you know, 45 minutes of, of, of my life. So uh, as far as the defense goes, we knew what time it was. We knew. And then, like I said, the guys weren't, like, fast or athletic. They were just big, and they were offensive linemen. They were just in the way kind of thing. So, man, we, we knew what time it was uh, before the game even started. So then after that point, that's your last game at Bama. Yeah. Um, then you get – you get signed as a free agent yep. to the Browns, and then you kind of bounce around from the Browns, Canadian League. Uh, there's one. There's one other league. Uh, arena down football. Somewhere. Which one? Arena football. Arena football. <laughs> um, talk to me about kind of like the process of you know kind of bouncing around a little, and then like what's going through your head after you're maybe you know you're on your like third team, and then then you kind of you know kind of gravitate away towards football. So uh, I got on with Cleveland. I didn't get drafted. I signed a free agent deal, but still, 
you Were know. Were you upset? What was, like, what? I mean, I wasn't upset because I already knew what time it was. I already knew it was like, man, the NFL might not work out. It might be in the future. It might not. It's a great deal if it does. But if it doesn't, man, be prepared. Um, you know, I was like, I, I tell myself, at least you got your degree, which looking back, you know, I think I kind of pre-framed myself for the letdown. Uh, instead of being like, man, fuck that. You're going to play forever until you say it's over with. And, you know, I just think that I could have went about the mental part a lot better than I did. Like, I just kind of, man, if it's okay if you, you know, don't make it kind of thing. And looking back, you know, I was 22. I'm 32 now. I'm just like, man, you should have had a different mindset uh, Do you have going any into I don't have any regrets. Um, but if I could go back in time, uh, I would have talk to myself a little bit different at, at that period of my time uh period in my life but as far as like the effort I put put forth and um you know I think I was a little like over football uh at that point because I started to see like the business side of it and um rather than man why do I have to run this 40 or do this bench press just watch the, watch the game film that's all you need to see um so I just uh, my mindset wasn't wasn't where I, then where I would have wanted it to be. Like looking back on it now, and uh, but man, you know I was like you know young and dumb, and I was like hell yeah, I'm here now, you know. So I'm trying to uh, you know try to make the most of it. So I get cut uh, um, in uh, in Cleveland, and like two days later, I get signed by. Uh, Maybe it's like a week later. Anyways, a uh, short time later, I get signed by a Canadian league. I was like, shit, it's Canadian football, so it's not like NFL, so I'm for sure finna ball out. I get cut from there, so I'm like, fuck. Oh. <laughs> and I play uh, arena football, and then it was just like lawless, you know. Uh, you know, I, I was used from coming from like a structured, structured program where everybody's held accountable for mm. uh, what they do on and off the field, and Man, guys were, like, starting fights in the middle of a game. I was like, well, what are you doing? And so, you know, it, it just wasn't fulfilling for me anymore. And, you know, I had some tryouts with the UFL, which was, like, kind of like a, you know, uh, developmental league, sort of speak. Um, I think they had, like, four teams. And, uh, you know, it was a bunch of former players. Uh, so I went to the tryout, and I thought I killed it. You know, I was, uh, you know, doing defensive lineman drill, pass rushing against dudes that have played from, like, the Saints and the Colts and stuff. And I thought I did, you know, really well, you know. And then, uh, you know, I didn't get picked up from there. So I, I finished the season of arena ball, and I, you know, sat down with myself, and I was just like, yo, if it's not the NFL, then, you know, fuck it. I don't want to play anymore. And I already had a son uh, back in Alabama, so I was like, man, you know, I guess it's over with. I'll go. You know, uh, not that like being a father was on like a second, it wasn't like a priority for me, but I was like, man, I'm, I'm only going to be young and able to do this. And I want to make as much money as I can playing football, right. uh, you know, while I can. And, uh, but it turns out, man, I didn't make any money playing football. And, uh, so I went back to Alabama and then, uh, man, I was doing the nine to five thing. And a lot of people, like, like the biggest misconception about me is people think that I went straight from football to MMA, and that could not be further from the truth. No, I watched your, I watched the, uh, 
I think you have a, it's like a little Vimeo documentary. Yeah, um, yeah. The one on your Twitter, it's like the pinned one. Um, it's really well done. Uh, and I think you, you mentioned that in there. Um, you talk about how it's not like you picked up MMA and just started punching. It was like there's a gap of time, right? Yeah, that about where you're two working. What, what are you? So what, what were you working as? Man, I, I did everything, man. I uh, I was a janitor. I had you know I had my college degree, which like I said wasn't worth shit. I was a janitor. I cleaned factories, uh, uh, cleaned apartments. You know, like you know when people move out and then somebody has to go in there and clean up all the shit that the people left so that they can get it ready for the next person. Um, I was a janitor. There was a part where I didn't even have a place to live. Like, I would stay on somebody's couch when I had my son. If I didn't have my son, like, I would sleep in my car or get a hotel room or whatever. Um, you know, I was cleaning piss out of, like, a, um, you know, I was a janitor. And then uh, I worked for Coca-Cola. Uh, I did end up getting a job for the with the government working up there in Huntsville, uh, which was cool. Uh, but man, you know, I, th I thought everything would be gravy, man. I, I just, I like held out for this job. Like it took me 10 months to get this job. I failed the security clearance thing at first. Cause you know, I was talking about earlier is, uh, being born in the Philippines. They thought I was some kind of, you know, terrorist, which I'm not sure how many of those come out of the Philippines anyways. Um, so I didn't get the job at first. And then I had to talk to this private investigator and had this whole dialogue and, you know, um, end up getting this job, and I was like, hell yeah, I'm working for the government. My life is straight. I'm satisfied. You know, life is peachy. But, man, I just sat at a desk, and, you know, I would go to work, come home, go to work, come home, go to work, come home. And I just found myself being frustrated, you know, just being pissed off all the time. And I was like, man, I'm a happy person. Why am I mad all the time? And it's because I didn't have an outlet, you know, and... um so I started training jujitsu. I like I wrestled a little bit in high school. I liked that. So I started doing jujitsu. I was like, oh, okay, word, this is fun. And then I started. Uh, then uh, I through a friend of mine, through a, through a mutual friend, uh, I met Walt Harris, who's a UFC heavyweight. He wasn't in the UFC at the time, but every bit just as big and as athletic as he is now, and just as good. Um, he was like, yeah, man, come to the gym. So I would come to the gym, which was in Birmingham. And uh, so I, I would drive from like Huntsville to Tuscaloosa uh, every weekend to get my son, which is a two and a half hour drive. I would come back to Birmingham, which is like halfway, uh, stay at a friend's house uh, with my son and I would train. And I walked into the gym and the coach uh, was like, uh, can you fight? And in my head, I'm like, man, you know what? I'm, I'm the five out of six kids. And Had you fought? Like, did you get into fights when you were younger? I fought all the time when I was a kid. So I was like, hell yeah, I could fight. <laughs> and now I see it's funny. Now I'm in the UFC and I meet people and they're like, I'm undefeated in street fights. And I was like, mm. there was a time where I was too, Buster. And, uh, <laughs> but man, you know, I just, uh, man, I just always been like a scrappy dude, man. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, I guess it's in my blood, so. I was like, hell yeah, I could fight. And I was like, okay, cool. I don't even think I had a mouthpiece, but he was like, go get in the ring with him. And I was like, hell, like pointing at Walt. He's like, yeah. So I was like, all right. For those of you who don't know, Walt is a mass, he's a big heavyweight. Yeah, yeah. He walks around like 260, 270. Yeah. He's 6'4", super fast, left-handed, like super athletic, played basketball in college. Um, 
So how'd that work out for you? It didn't work out for me at all. I spent probably four minutes and 55 seconds of a five-minute round in the corner with my hands above my face. And it's not like he's a malicious dude. Like, he wasn't, like, trying to kill me, but he's a big dude. And he throw, he's very fast, so with speed comes power. You know, it's not like he was trying to knock me out or anything, but, you know, he was, he was touching me a lot and hard, so... But then I fell in love with MMA right then and there. I was like, man, this is what I want to do. Uh, you know, this is going to be a struggle for me. I have to learn from from scratch. Uh, so I, you know, and I, I really enjoyed not necessarily getting beating, but it was a very humbling experience. You know, uh, you know, I played ball, ball in college. You know, uh, people say I played in the NFL. I don't say that, but I, you know, I didn't play in any games, but. You know, uh, professional athlete in one sport, and uh, he's like, "Man, here, I, like, I don't know anything. You know, I don't know shit." So, you know, it was a really humbling experience, and I, I fell in love with it right then and there. I was like, "Man, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm gonna do." And uh, man, I, I just trained as much and as and as and as often as possible. Do you think it kind of, in a way, uh, saved you? Maybe just because, like, I'm thinking. You know, you're 22 and just probably a few months removed, you you had made like, I mean, you're in the national championship game. And then you talk about, you know, working these jobs that I'm sure you probably never imagined prior that you'd be working. Like, how do you not, how do you keep your morals up and how do you keep that positivity? And is it MMA that, you know, when you, you say you used it as an outlet, like, do you really feel like it kind of in a way saved you and gave you that other space and activity to to work and to be yourself yeah absolutely because you know I, I did that for like two years like you know just bounce around from job to job and uh when I got that government job you know I was uh like I said I thought I was I was set and I just like you know it's just MMA gave me that outlet you know there's nothing that'll um and I'm not saying like make you happier, but there's nothing like blowing off steam by punching a bag or hitting mitts or, or wrestling around and doing jujitsu. Those things for me was like that was my peace, that was my zen. Even if I was losing or getting beat up uh, in sparring and in training and stuff, you know, I didn't see it as like getting beat up. It's like okay, don't do that anymore. So it's like one, it was like mental stimulation. As long as the physical aspect of things, I'm, I'm a physical dude. Like I have a lot of energy. I like to be up. I like to be moving around. Uh, so like, just living that that lifestyle of like you know coming home, going to work, comes like man, life is not supposed to be lived like this. Man, I'm supposed to be like traveling and meeting new people and and doing and experiencing different things. This sucks. I don't know who and how and why anybody would want to live this way. And uh, but man, it turns out I'm the I'm the weird one. Like there's a lot of people who who like that, you know. And uh, when I had that job in Huntsville, man, they weren't they didn't give me any work, and I had a lot of freedom. There was no clock to punch, so they would just say, you know, you know, make sure you work eight hours a day. I could come in at six and leave at three, or come in at eight and leave at five. So I would come in at eight and leave at like two, uh, just because man, I was just you know. I was bored, and there was a point where I was like, man, I really don't care what happened. So man, I would, like, take two weeks off and go train at American Top Team or uh, not even show up to work on Friday. It's not like they were missing me, you know, because they weren't giving me any work to do. And then, um, 
my contract ran up and uh, they weren't going to rehire me for obvious reasons. Not mad, and I completely understand. Uh, so I, I made my run to Birmingham. I was living in Huntsville, was getting good training uh, in, in Huntsville, but Birmingham was the spot. You know, that's where the, the gym that I was fighting out of was in Birmingham. And I would, like, drive this, you know, it's 100 miles from Huntsville to Birmingham. I would drive down every Monday to spar, and I'd be there every weekend uh, to train. And uh, I made my run, man. I, You know, me and my, the, the owner of the apartment or the person who ran the apartment were real cool. So I just went to her, and I was like, hey, you know, my contract, you know, I lost my job. Uh, you know, can I break my lease? And they were like, sure, you know one of the perks of playing for Alabama is like we don't have any pro teams so if you if you ball out for Bama you're like a little celebrity you know on the most minuscule scale that there is so I was you know cool so I, I rented a U-Haul packed up my stuff and you know didn't even have a game plan just put my stuff in a storage unit in uh, Birmingham was uh, kind of couch surfing um, until I got my own spot uh, and then I was working as a customer service representative for a, a car auction company, which now you're dealing with people's money. So you can imagine the phone calls that I would get, you know, people cussing me out and telling me what they're not going to do. And that, you know, at this point, like I'm training every day, you know, I wake up at like four or five in the morning, train till seven, take a shower, go to work, sleep on my uh, hour break, my lunch break or whatever finish the rest of the day and then go straight to the gym and then train till nine, 10 o'clock at night. So, you know, now I have an outlet. So yeah, like the middle of my day sucks, but you know, I'm training and I'm fighting, uh, as an amateur. I think I had my first and the first gym I trained at is really a shitty gym. Uh, poor coaching. He let me fight like two weeks or two months after I started training. It was my first MMA fight. Uh, he didn't even show up. I had somebody else wrap my hands. I asked another fighter who was fighting after me to corner me, and I was like, bro, you don't even have to say anything. I just need someone to hold the stool and give me water in between rounds. I had a boxing match and an MMA fight in the same night. Um, I lost the boxing match, the split decision, and, and the MMA fight, I knocked the, knocked the dude out in 50 seconds. So I was like, man, maybe MMA is the way for me to go. And um, I was fighting every other weekend, which I don't recommend it, you know, for anybody, because you're not, you're not you're not getting any better. Yeah. Like you are getting like experience in the cage, but after a certain point, it, it's 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 almost uh, irrelevant, you know. After you have that enough cage time, it's time to go pro. So you need to take time in between fights and develop as a fighter everything in your game. But man, I was just like knocking everybody out and you know doing really well. And I was making, you know, because I played for Bama, people wanted to sponsor me and stuff, so I was making a little bit of money. And uh, I think, like, two years, I had, like, 24 fights as an amateur, but, like, my last fight, fight last five fights, I moved uh, across town to uh, train at the gym that I still train at to this day uh, just because, you know, the coaching was better. Uh, the other coach is... Like, he lied about everything. Like, every word that came out of his mouth was a lie. He was never on time for anything. Um, so I, I, I went and went to the other spot, uh, Spartan Fitness, where I train at now. Uh, and everything ran like clockwork. Training is from here to here. We're going to do this on this day. People are on time or relatively close to it. Um, 
And so, you know, you know my career just progressed and blossomed uh, or started to. It really didn't, like, blossom really until I met uh, this one over here who kind of pulled me out of a black hole. How uh, So we talked a little bit before it started. How did you meet? Let's. I'm going to start with Yasmin because apparently it's a little different story. We're going to go with you second. Okay, cool. So, yeah, one night I went out. I was in Birmingham studying uh, the master uh, program at UAB. And one night I went out with some boys that uh, were doing, they did jiu-jitsu. They are all Brazilians. And I saw Eric coming. We, we were at a bar and I saw Eric coming, walking at, around like 3 a.m. I was ready to go home. And I was like, oh, look at him. He looks Brazilian. And the guys uh-huh. were like, no, he's not Brazilian, but we know him. I'm like, Was oh. it love at first sight? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> I look at him like, uh, you know. uh, he had the, the black power hair, you know, like, oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> and then I asked my, my friends, like, how do you guys know him? Oh, he, he trains some jujitsu with us sometimes. Um, so they, they, they asked me, do you want us to introduce you? I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? But then I saw Eric had a girl with him. I'm like, oh, you know what? Uh-oh. You know, I'm not doing this because, you know, he has a girl here with him. They're like, no, it's not his girlfriend. I'm like, no, forget it. Just, you know, let's forget it. And I go home. So I just looked at him, walked around, saw the girl with him. I'm like, okay, that's it. Let, let me go home and end of the night for me. But that's how, how we met. And then, and then from there? And then from there, when I left... My friend came to Eric and showed picture or something. I don't know what he (laughs) did. And he's like, my friend, uh, can you give me your number? I will give you my friend's number or whatever he did. And then he texted me right away from, I was sleeping already. He's like, hey, I just got Eric's number for you. I'm like, man, he had a girl with him. Don't do it. He's like, no, it's not his girl. So social media <laughs> would tell me right away. I'm like in social media, like Eric has a girl. And I'm like, well, apparently not. If he does, he's hiding. So we started like just texting. I'm like, hey, saw you last night. You know what? Do you have a girl or not? And he's like, no. So. so what's the Eric Anders version? Just so you know, that's as close to the truth as she's ever told that story. <laughs> yeah, that, that's lying. about how it happened. I had my uh, my pro debut uh, that night in Tuscaloosa, which is like 45 minutes away. We drove back to uh, Birmingham because there's not much to do in Tuscaloosa on, in the summer. So we came back to Birmingham. And uh, man, I had just won, so you already know. You know, I was, you know, not on this planet. I had been drinking and, you know, having a good time. And uh, man, I would, I would notice her, you know, ten out of ten times in any crowd. Like she's a really good-looking woman. So that's just how, you know, messed up I was. And you know, she came and sat next to me, and I didn't even know. So. And you know, I went with my girlfriend, so it's not like I was like trying not to look. Like she wasn't my girl. It's just like her friend came up to me. It was like, man, my friend is really into you. I was like, word. So uh, we started texting, and you know, I got her over to the house. You know, it's like, yeah. Hey, so you speak Portuguese, blase, blase. You know, come teach me some Portuguese. At the time, I had no interest in learning Portuguese. I just, you know, saw that she was a really good-looking woman, and I, you know, you know. Wanted to sleep with her, you know. So, but then she came over, and you know, she she was a lawyer. She spoke five languages. She was an entrepreneur. She was going to school uh, uh, to get a master's. You know, she had all these things going for her. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I'm not I'm not gonna push my luck. And you know, so it took me a while to make a move. 
And, you know, uh, later she tells me that she thought I was gay because it took me so long. Like, she, I would come over, she would cook, and I would eat and then go to sleep and wake up and leave. Were you nervous? And the more, I just, man, I wanted her to stay around, man. I didn't want her to think that it was just that, mm. you know, just a sex thing. I was like, man, she's got all this going on for her. So, she, like I said, you know, she has so much to offer uh, me as a person. And so I was like, this is one I need to, to, like, keep around for as long as I can anyways. And if I just try to, you know, sleep with her too soon, she's going to be like, oh, he's just, uh, you know, one of those guys. A lot, a lot of women, like, hold it against you if you're a football player. And especially if you're in a May fire, it's like, oh, you're just like a, you're like a meathead. All you want is, like, you know, a lot of women and... Not looking for nothing. And I really wasn't looking for anything, but man, you know, when something like that cross your path, you have to, you know, shoot your shot. And so what's it like? I mean, we'll get into some of your your own bodybuilding and what you do on the side, but what's it like, I guess, uh in a role as a wife of a UFC fighter? Or even like the wife of a of a boxer, you know, seeing your husband in a ring or an octagon. Sometimes getting the shit beat out of them, you know, bloody, yeah. uh, broken leg. You yeah, know, I'm very, just... I'm a very calm person. I don't, I'm not anxious or anything. So I trust him so much that I always bet money on him. In all fights, I bet money. Really? Yeah. So I trust him a hundred percent. I know what he's doing, and I trust, like, you know, uh, I know he's gonna win. I always bet he's gonna win. So I don't have any this fear of losing fight, money. These last few fights. It's okay though. <laughs> I keep betting on him. Uh, but I think the main thing when he has like the day of the fight, the days before the fight, if he has to cut too much weight, he's like knowing my place that, you know, he's in a bad spot now. He's cutting weight. He's going to be moody. So I try to balance the kids and him out so the kids don't feel that, that thing. So I try to balance everything out. Uh, it's not my time. It's his time. So I have to put myself in the background and I know my place. So I'm like, okay, it's his time to be moody. He's going to be moody. It's fine. It's his time to to shine. It's his time to shine. So I think it's very important that I know my place when it's fight time. I know my place when he's cutting away. So I think that's the hardest thing sometimes that I see women you know, to put themselves like uh, in the background a little bit when it's, you know, their time. Um, you know, I try to balance the kids and like, hey, you know, hold up. He's a little moody because he's doing this. Your kids don't understand, but let's do something else. And what what about like, I mean, obviously, you know, when is everyone's excited, but how is it like when you see your husband hurt sometimes? Do you get, does it affect you at all? Or you just know it's, he'll be fine. Uh, I know he's a very tough guy. So it, what worries me more is that sometimes I see it's bad and I know he's not going to say like it's bad. I have seen him in the hospital in Sao Paulo when, you know, he fought Thiago Marreta. And actually right bef- right after the fight, I know he had a concussion and he would be like, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm like, Eric, you are going to the hospital. I'm, like, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm like, Eric, I guess you are. And then the coach tried to help him out, like, okay, if he doesn't want to go to the hospital, I'm like, listen, he's my husband. If he had a concussion and he's hurt, I'm going to change his diapers. I'm going to take care of him, you know. And then uh, the commission came and said, like, hey, they were Brazilian. They're like, tell your husband in English because I don't think he's getting it. If he doesn't go to the hospital, we can take the money from the fight. And I'm like, Eric, you are going. (laughs) They're not going to take the money. 
So, yeah, so, like, these things are hard because at the same time, emotion, you know, everything comes to him, and I know he's tougher than, you know, he doesn't want to show that he's hurt or anything like that, but take care of him. I'm always there, like, after surgeries, I'm like, okay, I hope it's the last one. <laughs> Have you had a lot of surgeries? Uh, I think I had three in 2018. Yeah. I had my elbow, I broke my hand against Theodoro, and then I had my nose fixed. Do you feel it when you, do you feel like right when, I mean, you have so much adrenaline, I imagine, when you're fighting. Do you feel like a broken hand or a broken nose? Um, my elbow had been an issue for a while. And, uh, what was it about your elbow? I had a pinched nerve uh, in my elbow and, and bone spurs. And, you know, it, it was funny because, not funny, but, man, I, like this is all the range of motion I had in my elbow, which if you're trying to fight, you know, it's not good because it's like you can't wow. block anything, a whole lot coming from that side. And, uh, man, my, 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 my fingers kept going numb. And at first I just kind of let it ride because I would just wake up in the night and, you know, kind of do this. And then over time, it would get worse and worse, and the pain never went away. And after I fought Machida, I was like, all right, I'm probably going to have to sit down for a little bit anyways. Uh, so let me go and fix my elbow. Then uh, I fought Tim Williams, and, uh, man, I'm pretty sure that he broke my nose. And so now I can't breathe out of my nose. I go fight Thiago Santos. I didn't get any injuries, but uh, it didn't help anything and then I broke my hand against Theodoro which I knew it was broke uh but at the same time it's like what are you gonna do you're in the middle of a fight and it's not like I don't know I think I'm weird when it comes to pain like it doesn't hurt like other people describe like I've torn my Achilles and I've seen people on the ground like screaming bloody murder after tearing their Achilles and you know I just I kind of I tore my Achilles I got up I looked down I said, okay my foot's not dislocated uh, I didn't know that I had torn it, and I tried to take a step. My heel didn't come off the ground, and I was like, oh, shit. So I tried to take another step, same thing. I was like, I think I tore my Achilles. And, man, so I walked um, to the sideline, took off my cleats. I, I could see, the like, the gap uh, in the in my heel oh my from the, where it had torn, and it was all soft and stuff. And, you know, I went home and sit straight to the hospital, took a shower, and then had my, my roommate at the time take me to the hospital uh, for my Achilles. Um, you know, I broke my hand against Theodore. I was, you know, I threw it and I hit him in the top of the head. And I was like, man, I think I just broke my hand. You know, has him continuing to like, you know, have this conversation in my head as I'm in the middle of this fight. And uh, after the fight, I took my gloves off and, you know, I, I did like this and I could see the bone going up and down. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's broke. But... You know, it really didn't hurt. You know, we fought on the prelims. I took a shower, did the medical thing. The doctor was like, I don't know if it's broke. I was like, yeah, it's broke. <laughs> and uh, took a shower, and I went and sat in the stands with the, with, with the family and watched the rest of the card. My oldest son, who's, you know, going on 10, he's, you know, probably pushing 90 pounds, uh, carried him out of the stadium with, with my hand, you know, um, it didn't hurt until after surgery. After surgery, that's when it really started to hurt because, you know, they put the screws in there. So they really they take a, a drill, put the plate over, set the bone, put the plate over the bone, and drill like seven screws. Is that the scar from it? Yeah, into the, uh, into the bone. 
So I was like, man, for like a week, man, it was just, I don't do pain pills, but man, I had to, I had to do something, man, because it's just, it's like a constant 24-hour throb. And I went probably two days after surgery, and after that, I was like, man, I give up, man. This shit's not going anywhere. So I kind of want to, you know, you touched on Machida and some of the fights. Um, I kind of want to go through a few of them. Uh, just, I mean, you know, you can tell when the UFC wants to promote somebody. Sure. And I, I know they want to promote you, you know? I mean, they give you... They call you on short notice. You make your short notice. De- uh, your debut is a short notice fight. You come in there, you kill, uh, kill. You you knock out Natal. Uh-huh. Um, and then you know what you have. It's it's Natal Perez, and then you fight main event, uh, UFC uh, fight night against Leoto Machida. Um, you know, former champ, legend. Like, what's going through your mind at that point? And you know, I mean, a lot of people scored it. I think it was like. 16 of like the 23 major media outlets scored it in your favor. What's going through your mind? I mean, in my eyes, I think you wanted to. I'm obviously also a little biased because I know you now as well. But I also genuinely do think you won the fight. But also, what what's it like for you, you know, after that fight where you feel like you won um, and, you know, you didn't get the nod? Um, and then where do you feel like did, – did, how did that kind of shape the rest of your UFC career – from that point on, uh, well, that that fight in particular, you know, I was I kind of feel like I was a little hard on myself because you know he moved around so much, you know, I would hit him and I would see his eyes roll back into the back of his head like he was ready to go, and instead of like stepping back and throwing more punches and actually knocking him out, I kind of started to grapple with him like I clinched him up against the cage and tried to take him down and stuff. And, you know, just as soon as the fight was over, you know, uh, I wasn't sure how they scored it. I felt like I won the middle three rounds. Fit, you know, the first one is, is probably the most obvious. The first one, you know, he kicked my leg out from underneath me. I spent most of the fight on my back with him standing over me. Um, but rounds two, three, and four, I thought were, you know, went to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, with round five, coin flip, you know. Uh, so... You know, I, I think I was a little hard on myself. I was like, man, you should have done this. You should have done that. Are you thinking about the score in your head when you fight? Uh, not really. You know, after the fight's over, it's just kind of... Because I was just thinking I was going to knock him out in any moment. I was like, the next punch I throw, it's it for him. He can't take too much more. He was leaking all over the place. He was bleeding. Um, you know, I think I had uh, knocked him down or dropped him three times. I was taking him down. I had a couple takedowns. So I thought I was... Uh, winning the fight and didn't realize that they were counting his little, you know, he's kicking me with his big toe. So in my head, I'm like, man, that ain't shit. You know, there's no way they count that as a significant strike. Every time I hit him, he falls or, you know, he falls up against the cage or whatever. So I was like, man, I'm for sure winning this fight. But after that fight, I was like, man, you know, I can't believe that, you know, I let that get away from me. And I wasn't even breathing hard after the, the fifth round. Like, you know, so I just felt like, you know, if you're going to lose a decision, uh, you should be, like, completely exhausted, can't move, just, you know, just gave it everything you had instead of, you know, I think I was just kind of, that's about the time I, like, started, I was falling in love with with my power in my left hand, so every punch was just, like, trying to knock his block off. Instead of just, like, you know, touching him, setting up shots, I was chasing him instead of cutting him off, Um 
But man, those I, I don't think that I think you should take a few days to like really think about the fight and to rewatch the fight and you know just let out let the dust clear you know let the dust settle and you know so then you, you take all the emotion out of it like it's over with you know you kind of come to grips with the win or the loss um, so you know it was just I think uh, tactical errors. Uh, that I and and then you know his three he had been knocked out the the three fights before like he fought Romero Brunson and maybe Rockhold uh, the three fights before mine he was trying to box him and I was like hell yeah if he tries to box with me he's for sure out of here uh, but he started running around so you know I think I failed to make adjustments uh, in that fight um, and just kind of let him get away with too much. Like every time he kicked me, I you know I should have you know dropped him or hit him or threw a punch or a strike. And um, there were just a lot of things that I felt that I did that I could have done better or differently in that fight. And at the time, or looking back on it now, I was like, man, you should for where you were at, you know, ten fights into a pro career, fighting a guy like Machida, you know, who's had like thirty fights, former champ, he's fought everybody, you know, you're you're being a little being a little hard on yourself, you know. And we were fighting in Brazil. I think if we fight in America. I think if you fight in that's America, me. that's you getting the decision. Yeah, we fought in his hometown at that. So, yeah. Um, and then I had surgery, then I turned around, fought Tim Williams. Uh, you know, got a performance bonus, knocked him out. Um, then they called me for uh, Chiago. And I was like, man, cool. But, what, what you know, what's the money look like? You know, cause I'm not, <laughs> woo, I'm not gonna fight that dude on my current contract. You forget about that. Um, so, man, you know, they uh, gave me a new contract, new four fight deal. Uh, so I was like, cool, we'll make it happen. Um, got another performance bonus. You know, those those are the kind of fights that I like. Even though I lost, I went out on my shield. Oh, the yeah. people were entertained. The fans were entertained, and. Uh, you know, we went to war. You know, it was a fun fight, regardless of the outcome for me. You know, I'd rather lose like that than lose like I lost to Machida. Right. And so I turned around, rebound against, uh, or come back. They offered me the Theodoro fight. Cool. Let's do it. Um, and kind of the same thing, man. You know, I just kind of, you know, was uh, chasing him around. The, I think the volume uh, was the issue. so irritating. Yeah. Well, you know, the... Uh, I, you know, I rewatched the fight, and they like he's throwing a hundred more strikes uh, than than Eric has. The, the commentators, I'm like, okay, well, out of those hundred more that he's thrown, uh, how many have actually landed? Because he was just throwing a lot of shit at air, and he really wasn't like hitting me a whole lot, you know. And what, what he was hitting me with, it was kind of like Machida, but worse, because like at least Machida had a little thump on his, you know. And, and I'm, I'm not talking shit, man. I'm not like. You know, downplaying Theodore or whatever, you know, the guy who went 8-3 and three in the UFC, man. Fought a lot of good guys or whatever. But, you know, I don't think that I lost that fight because uh, there's a whole rubric. There's like there's a scoring sheet on how they're supposed to score the fight. Effective striking, effective grappling, cage control, aggressiveness. And, you know, I for sure won. He, he won the first round. I for sure, without a doubt, won the second round, dropped him. Um had him on wobbly feet. I think I dropped him twice, if I if I remember correctly. In the third round, he landed only eight more strikes 
than I did. But I did everything else better than he did. Like, I had him up against the cage. Um, I landed more power shots. And so for me, like, not just because it was me, but even when I was a fan watching the UFC, before I was in the UFC, I always thought that the guy who was, you know, if it was close in, like, the strike differential, the guy who was landing harder shots, like, wins. You know, I don't think anybody got a takedown in that fight. Um, he may have took me down once in the first round, which he got anyways. Um, but, man, he only landed eight more strikes. And, you know, I'm, I'm the one who was putting on the pressure. I'm the one who was throwing the power shots and landing the power shots. He was just kind of bink, bink, bink. And uh, once again, we're in Canada. So, you know, that's another thing, you know, another fight. I wasn't breathing hard after the fight. So I think if I could do that fight differently, you know, I broke my hand in the second round uh, before I dropped him. Uh, but I think if I go back and I fight that fight again, I, you know, empty the gas tank in the second round. Because if I'm going to lose the fight, fuck it. I want to get him out of there, you know. Uh, if I'm going to lose the fight in the third round anyways, then, you know, at least have it be a little bit more decisive. And, you know, I think that if I would have pressed the issue and, like, you know, kind of went back to how I used to fight before and early into my UFC career, like, there's no way I get a dude hurt like that and he gets out of the round, especially I think there was, like, a minute and a half left in the round. It's over with. Um, and I think that I just tried to take a more, like, calculated um, approach to the fight and instead of just fighting how I fight, uh, you know, I think that I get him out of there in the second round. And do you think, I mean, are you kind of done fighting on other people's hometown turf? Because, like, there's, like, guys like Max Griffin, you know, he, he was actually, uh, he talked out about it the other day. He got, I mean, he basically got robbed two straight times going to Brazil. I mean, there's always, that Thiago there's Alves always a little fight. fishy, a fishy scoring out there in Brazil. Um, Tiago Alves, I mean, that was, like, a clear decision I, I, I for I thought he Max. for sure won. So it's, like, as a, as a fighter, you know, when this stuff matters, like, you know, to some people it's like, oh, whatever. But, like, you guys, it affects your pay, right? Sure. It affects, you know, if you go on a three, four, five fight. I mean, it's rare that it gets to four or five. Losing streak in the, in the UFC, you know, unless they really like you and they want to keep you, you're probably gone. It affects your promotability. It pr affects everything. So, like, for you as a, as a fighter, does that kind of – do you think about that now from when you're going to be booking fights? Um. I mean, you're also yes a guy who, no. who's ready to fight. You you don't care where it is or who it I, is. I think you know, I'm on a three-fight losing streak, and I just got a new contract. Right. You know, so the UFC likes me. They like the way I fight. You know, I've, I've you know, done stuff for them in the past. How, how many fights is your new contract? Four. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm finna fight in June. I'll be the first fight. So, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, my job is on the line, and I do think about it. Uh just because, man, I don't give a fuck. New contract or not, they can cut you whenever. So uh, I think it's important to get this win in this next fight. But, man, you know, I, I, I like challenges. And, you know, I'm a special kind of dumbass. So if they called me <laughs> and he's like, you want to fight, you know, so-and-so uh, in, in their home country, then, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say no. You know, so I've never said no to the UFC. So And they know that. They know who to call when. Somebody gets hurt, somebody who, who they need to be ready in that middleweight or uh, light heavyweight division, and it's me. And, you know, I'm cool with that. I know that I know my role, you know. So, uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Uh, but if they were like, go fight, uh, I don't know, somebody, then, you know, I'd, 
you know, roll those dice and say, fuck it and fight anyways. How do you, like, you know, yes, you're on a skid right now. I'd say it's a little bit, you know, controversial fights. Some could have gone, should have gone your way. Some didn't. How do you mentally and physically, what kind of adjustments are you making? And how does, you know, the last couple of fights kind of go about in your head when you're preparing for this fight? And do you feel, I mean, have you ever felt pressure or do you feel more pressure now? I don't really feel pressure. And I think that uh, the fans in the UFC appreciate the way that I fight. Like even my last fight, you know, I got demolished and I got dropped four times in one round. But guess what? I got up four times and kept pushing forward and kept moving forward and kept fighting. Whereas a lot of guys are like, man, fuck it, I'm done. And like, will quit on the stool or something like that. You know, uh, or we'll say something to the doctor to like kind of make the doctor stop the fight or whatever. But, you know, the doctor, he's like, are you good? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm straight, man. It's, it's cool, you know. Um, so I think that they appreciate like, you know, my heart and, and, and my fight. And I'm not really in any boring fights outside of like Machida, who's, you know, that's 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 his fault, man. He was the one running the whole time. Oh, yeah. I came to fight. You know, Theodore, he was, they were running the whole time. I came to fight. Thiago, you know, that's the way you the cookie crumbles sometimes, you know. Yeah. But we were in the middle of that bitch th throwing, you know, and the people like that. And, uh, you know, I, one thing I think they appreciate the way I lose uh, as well. And, you know, I really don't like saying that, but, uh, you know, it is what it is, you know. They, uh, you win some, you lose some, and, you know, it's all, on to the next. So, you know, I, I enjoy a laugh. So even if the laugh is at myself, you know, uh, the rest of the world is laughing at you anyway, so you might as well get a laugh in yourself. So uh, I just it's a combination of all these things that, you know, kind of make me a fan favorite and easy to deal with for the matchmakers. And, you know, people want to see me win. People want to see me succeed. And above all that, they want to see me fight because they know it's going to be an entertaining fight and they know, you know, somebody's leaving out of there busted up. Do you feel like sometimes, and we were kind of talking about it before uh, going live, that you feel like you might be a little bit too tough for your own good. Like, you know, I was rewatching the the last fight and, you know, you're down two rounds. Um, you know, I think, it, I don't, I don't want to quote, but some of the commentators were like, maybe you should throw in the towel. I know it's like never crossed your mind, but do you feel like more fighters maybe should throw in the towel? And do you feel like sometimes in your career, you know, to save yourself, you should have done it? Man, I, I think if I quit in the middle of a fight, then that's probably the end of my career. Mm. I think that, you know, it's uh, that's not in me to quit. If I get knocked out, that's not quitting. If I get submitted, that's not quitting. But if I'm able to fight and I, you know, because I got dropped four times or whatever the issue, outside of like an injury or something crazy like that, if I quit in the middle of a fight, then that that tells me that lets me know that you know my heart's not in it and you shouldn't be doing it anyways cuz that's when you're really going to get fucked up so uh I, and you know i guess it's that that answer is different from everybody for everybody but for me personally if i quit in the middle of a round just because it's not going my way or i don't answer the bell uh for the next round like Thiago Santos i didn't even make it to the fucking stool so i don't count that you know, so uh, I think if if I sit on the stool and I say I'm done, then that's that's it. I'm probably not going to fight anymore. Do you love what you do? Absolutely, man. I love the training. I love the traveling. I love I love everything about MMA. Uh, you know, even the weight cutting isn't too bad. It's just like the last two or three pounds that fucking that suck. But everybody goes through that when I fight to 85. So. 
you know, uh, I love the training. I love the struggle. I love the, you know, getting up. I almost feel normal when I'm fighting because I really don't feel like I express or feel too many emotions. But, you know, after winning, you know, it's like I'm human. Like, you know, it's just this rush of emotions and endorphins and stuff. And I think the fighting is the most primal thing that a human can do. I think the humans are made to fight, you know, and should fight. And it's do you weird. think they are? You think, because, I don't know, it's also super interesting. You could go in there and you want to punch or submit somebody unconscious, but like, you're like the nicest guy. Like how, it's, and that's what a lot of people will talk about is, you know, some of these MMA guys, some I think genuinely want to hurt people, but I think it's like the slim minority. Sure. I mean, you guys are, might be some of the nicest athletes there are. Um, well, why I, do you think that is? I think that MMA is a humbling, hum, very humbling experience. Uh, you know, in football, there's, you know, two, three, four alphas in the locker room, guys that, you know, have never even really been tested. They're just bigger, stronger, or whatever. Uh, and so nobody wants to, like, test those waters. But in MMA, there's no hiding. There is no fake persona. There is no tough guy act. Everybody's been beat up. Everybody's been submitted. So you know that there's somebody out there that's going to fuck you up or can't fuck you up and has fucked you up. So there's nowhere to hide. So everybody's like, you know, in the back of their minds, like, you know, I've been done in before. Whether it be knocked out in a fight or, you know, submitted on a regular basis by a training partner or just pieced up in practice or whatever, everybody kind of knows that there's a bigger, better fish. And, and it's funny because, you know, uh, there's always somebody. And that, that person who beats you up might get beat up by somebody you just beat up, you know. Uh, so it's it's weird like that. Uh, football and other sports, there's there's not a whole lot of challenging or posturing or anything like that. So, um, I, you know, MMA is a humbling, very humbling experience. So your next opponent, Vinicius Marrero. Um, without, obviously you don't want to look past it, but what do you kind of see yourself after this fight? Go get that win. What do you hope... Um, you know, to do in the next couple, I don't want to say, if, I don't want to get too ahead, of course, but like, what do you see yourself in the next year? What, 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 what are your goals? Do you have any goals? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I, at the beginning of the year, I write down all my goals that I want to achieve for the year and put them on the refrigerator, I write them down on paper, put them up on the refrigerator. And, um, you know, to, I like to fight often, uh, about four times a year. And it's funny you say like, what do I have planned? Uh, I do a lot of like visualization, not necessarily like uh, what happens, what's going to happen during the fight, uh, but like the feelings that I want to feel and uh, express after the fight and what I want to not look like you said, not look, it's not looking past the fight is once you win, you know, what's next kind of thing. So, you know, I just like uh, visualize myself, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't know who the, the, uh, the MC is going to be, I don't know if it's going to be Joe or I'd imagine it's going to be Joe Martinez. Uh, but I just imagine him saying my name and, uh, you know, I like to go, I think about going out there and getting this quick finish, uh, uh, in this fight. And, uh, you know, if I could possibly turn around and find that San Antonio car, that's where I'm from. Uh, so, you know, in a perfect world, I go out there, I get him out of there in the first round, come out unscathed. And then uh, turn around and get another fight in San Antonio. Do you have, have you pictured yourself as a UFC champion one day? Absolutely. You know, I think that, uh, yeah, I'm on this little skid right now. And I'm bouncing back and forth between two weight classes. But 
I think I'll settle into the middleweight division and, you know, go on a streak and uh, see myself in title contention uh, by the middle of next year. And how many years do you see yourself still fighting? I mean, like you're you're 32, so you're you're still young. You're still probably around, I'd say, probably close, prime. Um, but you have a lot of years of football on you as well. How does your body feel and how, how many more years do you see yourself fighting? Uh, man, honestly, this is the best I've ever felt uh, in my life. You know, when I played football, you know, I was like close to 250 pounds. That big? Uh, yeah, wow. yeah, especially after because, you know, I was like lifting and eating and, you know, living the good life. And, uh, man, it was just a lot of weight on my on my joints and my, my knees always hurt, my back always hurt. I was stiff. I couldn't touch my toes. You know, I've gotten into yoga and stretching and, and range of motion and flexibility and stuff, and that to me has made the biggest difference uh, in the way my body feels. And also, you know, there's cryotherapy and, you know, all these other ways to help you recover and stuff that I'm really utilizing. So, um, and this is more of a natural weight for me to be walking around at. I'm not killing myself in the weight room, uh, staying healthy, eating right. My diet is on point. And uh, so this is the best I've ever felt, and I think that that's really going to prolong my career. But, you know, I, I tell my wife and kids I want to be done by the time I'm 35. But the older I get, the better I feel, so I don't know. You know, especially if, like, I'm in, like, the top five, top ten, I'm not going to retire. No way. So, uh, man, we'll see. You see guys like Romero, you know, that dude's 42, and he's still trucking, so... Uh, Machida, he's up there. He's he's still doing it. So I think once I can't compete at the top anymore, like in the UFC, then you know, uh, me and my wife, we have enough like residual income, and you know, she makes good money that you know uh, I could retire now and we'd still be straight, and I could just do the stay at home dad thing. Uh, but I think I would miss the competition. I think it's too young. I'm, I'm it's too early for me to to do that. Uh, I think about. Uh, at the minimum, uh, 35. Okay. And there's one, there's a, talking about weight cuts and stuff, just for some people don't know kind of the details. Honestly, I don't even know all the details of a weight cut. And you guys both, so Yasmin, you're, you compete in the IFBB. So that's bodybuilding. Um, different, there are different styles. Can you kind of explain that? Because yeah, I'm not even so, familiar with it. For my type of competition, I have to cut weight too, but it's a different type. He cuts weight and he has to um, focus more on performance. So he has to cut weight, eat well, but it doesn't matter how he's going to look. He can look like he doesn't need to look good. He just needs to be well fed and perform well. Uh, and for me, it's different. It doesn't matter, you know, what I eat. It matters how I'm going to look, if my skin is looking tight, if my my muscles are looking full. So that's the difference. But the last week, I still have to dehydrate a little bit. So he does a little more intense, and uh, I still do it. But one of the reasons that I started competing was seeing him cutting weight and going on a diet with him and everything. I'm like, and he would be super moody and doing uh-huh. this all the time. And I'm like, you know what, I'll give it a try. Cause then I'm 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 gonna be on his shoes and I know I can judge him. I can't judge him if I don't know what is going through that. So I started doing it and I started seeing like uh, it's bad, but I think you can do better. <laughs> and then Eric actually started improving and doing it better. And now he he's a pro cutting way. He can do it and it goes just perfectly and smooth. Will you guys each kind of detail how different? your weight cuts are or what kind of what kind of things do you do 
that might be similar different to what Eric does? Uh, Eric eats way more because he's a bigger guy and he eats more times a day and he his meals are distributed depending on the training he's doing. For example, if he's doing more mornings, uh, more intense uh, workout, he eats a little bit more of carbs and I always try to balance out his, his macros depending on what he's doing. And for me, it's much more like um, the same type of um, meals that I have. As closer as I get to the competition, I cut all the carbs because my performance is not going to be so... Um, it doesn't matter so much because the last weeks I actually just got way down. So I don't need to perform too well at the gym. So had you, so you said um, seeing him kind of, uh, was it, had you done any bodybuilding uh, before meeting him? Or no, was- I work out, it's been 16 years that I like to lift to weights and uh, do cardio and everything, but I have never done it for, you know, for something specific like that. But my coach has always told me, like, you should compete, you should compete. I think you have the mindset, you have the discipline. I was like, nah, maybe it's not for me. But then I started seeing that this is a good hobby because that's what I really like to do, and why not? If I'm just, you know, always yeah, lifting weights, always training, always doing everything else, so why not competing? So at what point were you like, I'm going to make this? Is this, would you say it's your main job? No, no, no. Now I have a school, a second language school, and uh, competing is just a hobby. So it's, I would say, what keeps me healthy and challenging me all the time, humbling me all the time, too. So, do you have your students that talk that ask you questions about competing? um, competing? Yes, all the time. The girls, especially the the women, are like, Ah, can you help me with my dad? I'm like, I'm not a trainer, Uh, my coach can help you. So, yeah, do you ever, how I mean. Do you have to watch your diet on a daily basis? Can you ever really go off? Yeah, we, we always have vacations, so we always give us like a week off here and there. I always have my cheat meals, and the, the more I, I, I do it, I think it's my, my body adapts better to the diet, and I can be a, a little more flexible with it. But yes, we do, a lot of, we do a lot of vacation and free time eating whatever we want. What's the biggest misconception about bodybuilding? And that's a good question. Uh, the biggest misconception? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think people, a lot of times people think that the athletes look exactly what they do on a daily basis, like all the time, and it's not really that. Uh, that is how you look ex- specifically for the show, and that's not how you're going to look the rest of the year, you know. It's it's the biggest misconception. We were today at the Fit Expo, and people think the athletes are going to look perfect with a six-pack and buff and ripped all the time, and it's written really not not even healthy to be like that all the yeah. time. Well, what about that? I mean, like, there's a lot of talk in the, you know, in the fighting world about getting rid of uh, weight cutting and... You know, I'm sure with you as well. Like, what do you feel like it could be better to change the weight cutting process or regulate it? I don't know. For MMA, I think it it would be a little mess to do it. I think the difference is she's not getting socked in the face. Yeah. So, like, when you dehydrate, like, your brain is dehydrated, and that's how you see some guys, like, one fight, they'll take a beating or go through a war, and then, like, the next fight, you know, the, a stiff breeze knocks them out, and it's because they dehydrate. Maybe didn't re, maybe dehydrated too much, cut too much water, and didn't rehydrate as much. Uh, so you know, she can be dehydrated, 
and still go out there, flex and pose and stuff with no repercussions. If I cut a bunch of water and I don't rehydrate properly, all right, and but you know, it starts like weeks before. Like if I fuck off like the first four weeks of an What's eight week schedule like? Uh, for say, me, say for when you go down to, cause right now you're at 205, when you go down to 185, what, what does a weight cutting process look like for you? I, I need at least six weeks to make 185, uh, the way I want to make 185, the easiest way possible where I cut the least amount of water possible, uh, is about a good six weeks. I can, I can do it in less, but I'm not as, you know, I, I cut from like 230 to 185 when I fought in the tall, uh, and it sucked. And I, in like ten days, I did that, uh, and it's it's not fun. And cut forty five pounds in ten days. I cut, yeah. Wow. And uh, but I couldn't say no, man. It's fucking this UFC, and so I was like, hell yeah. And what did I'm you walk in that night as? Um, I don't remember. You were not too heavy. Yeah, I wasn't night. super heavy. They um, now now they weigh you in uh, when you get to the arena, but I don't think they were doing that then. Can you? Is there now a limit on what you can weigh on the fight night? No, but in like California, they only want you to cut X amount of your uh, body weight, and you can only put X amount on. So, uh, long story short, I fought in California when I fought Marcus Perez. Um, they make you do like a, a FaceTime phone call, and make you get on a scale, and like a few weeks before the fight. And I didn't want to do that because I already know I'm like heavy. And so I didn't want them talking shit. So I put them off, put them off, put them off. And they were leaving messages on my phone telling me they could suspend me. Then I'd be in breach of my UFC contract. So I finally call them back on a Sunday where I don't train. And it's like the Sunday before the fight. And I've been, you know, drank two gallons of water. So I'm like super saturated. And I get on the scale and I'm like 225. And then fast forward to Tuesday I get off the plane in Fresno and my manager Jason House calls me and says hey they're trying to make you fight this other guy who's a bigger uh, middleweight and then your opponent's going to fight that guy's opponent and then you are going to have a catch weight at 195 and I was like hell no hell no I trained to fight this guy I'm going to fight this guy at the weight that I signed to fight and that's going to be that and I made weight without issue probably the easiest weight cut I've had at that um and, uh, yeah, so California, I don't think they're going to let me fight at 185 anymore. What's your What's your worst weight-cutting story? Oh, my God. Really? When, I, when, I fought in, uh, when I fought Machida, you know, they I don't know why they did this. but they It was put at 185, us, yeah? Yeah, it was middleweight. Yeah, we fought, and they put us in a hotel with no bathtub, and that's how I cut the weight is I just sit in a hot tub, in a, in a bathtub of hot water with uh, Epsom salt and green alcohol, and it just sucks the water For right down. Uh, it depends. I do like, excuse me, like 20 minutes in, and I'll get out for like 10, 15 minutes, wrap up in a blanket or sleeping bag or something to keep the sweat going. And I'll just keep, uh, excuse me, keep doing rounds until I make weight. So, uh, but they didn't have a bathtub in the hotel. So on the day that everybody cuts weight, you know, Thursday night, Friday morning, uh, they were like, when do you want to go to the hotel? And I was like, man, I'll go at, like, 2 in the morning. So uh, we get to the hotel at, like, 2 or 3 in the morning, turn on the hot water. Water's piping hot, nice, perfect. It's cool. So I turn off the water, take a nap, get up at, like, 4, get on the treadmill to get a sweat going because it makes it go a little bit faster. This is on the Friday of weigh-ins? Yeah, yeah, this is, like, 4. We got weigh-in between, 
So what are you weighing at 4 a.m. on the on the, on the I, Friday? I weigh-ins? think I had like 10, 12 pounds to go. That's I mean that's still that, like that's to, to real human beings like that's still especially you're you're a you're like a high level athlete. Yeah. That sounds crazy. Like you don't have a lot to lose. You know. Uh, I mean I, maybe I may- find a way to get it off. I mean, yeah. that, it's so unhealthy, don't you think? Do you feel it? Uh, man, I can do it. And so, like, I don't know. I have, like, a lot of muscle, and I sweat crazy. Like, you know, I wake up, you know, after sleeping at night, and there just be a puddle of water in the bed for me sweating. So I think for some people, like, have a harder time to start sweating or don't hold as much water. But I think I hold a lot of water, and I sweat really easy, so 10, 12 pounds. Like, I'll lose that in a workout. When I'm fully hydrated, wow. it's not uncommon for me to to train for an hour, hour and a half, and sweat out. Like, and that's like essentially like a gallon, gallon and a half. It's not uncommon for me to do that. So from at four a.m., what time do you have to weigh in on a Friday? Nine. So from four to nine a.m., you lose like ten to twelve pounds. Well, no, we're, usually we're, 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 gonna, we're gonna get into it. All right, this. get into it. Um, so we, uh, I get up before I get on the treadmill, get a sweat going. My uh, my teammate calls me and said, man, there's no hot water. And I'm just like, man, how stupid can you be to not know how to turn on hot water? Because I'm also cutting weight, so I'm not putting this together yet. So I go down there, I try to turn on the hot water, and nothing but air comes out. So you get on the phone and say, hey, there's no hot water. Oh, our hot water heater blew up. Excuse me. And this is a nice hotel, man. Like, you go in, there's a big foyer. Do you think they were fucking with you because they know you're fighting Machida? I don't know. I think they were. I don't know. But they moved us to another room, and, uh, you know, the same thing, no hot water. And I think Pedro Munoz and, like, two two Brazilians missed weight. It was for everybody, not only for Pedro Munoz and uh, Michael Polaris, Polaris. Uh, so what'd you do? So what happened after that? Um, so they moved me to another room, and I'm just watching the time tick away. So um, I try to sit in the in the sauna, and that's just the sauna's not for me. And so uh, it's just way easier because when you sit in the tub, it like sucks out all the subcutaneous water, like the muscle between your skin and your muscles. So it's not like affecting performance. Like if you sit in the sauna or the 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 wet sauna, the dry sauna, like your brain dehydrates and you get delirious in there. Uh, and that's why guys pass out when they cut weight in the sauna. They're trying to cut too much and, the, and it's hot in there, obviously. And then, uh, so it's probably like 7 o'clock now. Still no hot water. And you're still, you still have 10 to 12 pounds to cut at that I point. Think I, I've got, point I, I probably have like five okay. or so. So I, I'm able to, like, I'm sitting in the sauna and, and you know, I'm on the treadmill and stuff. And, uh, well, man, what's going through your, like, I, for people that have never cut weight like that, you know, like, I imagine you haven't eaten a lot in a while. So I, I fast for 24 hours before I get on the scale, so I haven't eaten since from 9 o'clock the morning before. And, uh, man, I'm really, really getting pissed off because, man, I could be done with this shit by now. I could have been just sat in the tub and just go back and forth and be straight. And so they, they bring up these cauldrons of boiling water. This Man, this water, you could like, man, I just felt like, uh, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoons where he's sitting in there, he's chopping up carrots, and he's just singing a song, taking a bath. They brought up like cauldrons like that of boiling water, put it in the tub, so now the tub is full of this hot-ass water. And I stick my toe in there, and I swear the meat of my toe almost boiled off my foot. And I was like, man, I'm not doing that. I'm not sitting there. Hell no. I'm going to die. <laughs> and so now I have to, like, drain the water, put cold water in there. 
And now it's like it's nine o'clock, and now uh, so now the weigh-ins have started. I have until eleven, and so you know I'm back and forth. And you know I, when you get stressed and pissed off, like your body's just and you're already like your body's already stressing because it's Are not. You, you feel nauseous as well? Uh, nah, not too much. And uh, man, so I'm bound real. I'm just fucking just mad. So now your body's like stressing out. You're releasing the hormones to hold on to water, so you're not. It's not coming off as easy. Um, so they make you go check your weight at 10 o'clock. So I go down there. I got like four pounds left. Uh, I go back up. 11 o'clock hits. It's like, bro, you got to weigh in. And, uh, you know, two other guys called it quits an hour ago. They said, fuck it, because of the hot water issue. But I was like, man, I'm at least try to make weight. So I go down there. I'm like two pounds or I think it was only like two pounds over, which is miraculous. Wow. You know, fucking. Oh, I thought I was like, man, I got a lot closer than I thought I was. They don't even get to like cut you some slack for. Well, so man, I, I sit down, I missed weight, and I'm already pissed. But I've already come to grips. I was like, okay, I just lost twenty percent of my money. This is bullshit. It's not even my fault. So man, I'm talking. About, I get the water. Right there, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. stop, stop, stop. Uh, we're gonna go ask the commission. And Machida, if it's cool, if we give you an extra hour because it's not your fault. And so now it's like a nuclear bomb went off in my head. I've, I've come to grips. I've lost my money. Fuck it. At least I get to, like, rehydrate now. And so they have, like, a 30-minute conversation, and I'm still sitting here, like, dead. <laughs> and uh, they're like, okay, we're going to give you another hour. So I'm not doing the tub. And, you know, it's, it's like 1130 in uh, Belain, which is, like, right below the equator. And uh, so I put on a sauna suit, put on my sweats, and I go outside, and it is fucking hot as shit. It's, it's got to be, like, 100 degrees and 100% humidity. Him, yeah. And Belain is, like, at the top of the Amazon. So I'm walking through the fucking rainforest or a city in the middle of a rainforest, and I'm just, like, pacing back and forth in front of the hotel, and they gave me an hour, but, like, at 45 minutes, I was like, man, you know what? Fuck it. I'm done with this shit. If I don't make weight, I don't make weight, and it's going to be what it is. And I get on the scale, and they uh, we win 86 on the dot. Wow. And they give you that pound. So I was like, oh, I get to keep all my money? Fuck yeah. But now it's, like, you know, it's, it's 12, and I'm just like, man, I need a nap. I need drinks. And I just, you know. And then we turned around. I don't think it affected my performance too much. You know, we fought five rounds, and you know, I wasn't breathing hard at all. But you know, it's it's not a fun experience for for shit like that to happen. Yeah. There's one other thing on uh, that we kind of talked about uh, pre podcast was hypnotism. Um, kind of talk to me about that and how the, what role that's played uh, in your life as a fighter. It's mostly for fighting. Sure. Yeah, so, uh, man, my last fight was against Khalil Roundtree. And if you watch his other fights, you know, he just came out like a, a totally different mm -hmm. person. And I think, you know, that night I was, you know, it, I felt, I didn't feel like fighting. And that's like the simplest way that I can explain it. You know, I, I found myself like grouchy all day. And, you know, I was just like, man, I don't even want to do this shit right now. Um and I think it showed. I think the combination of his best performance along with my wor worst performance made that fight turn out how it did. And, uh, man, I just kept hearing him talk about hypnotism, hypnotism, hypnotism. 
uh, you know, a week or two after the fight, and I watched this podcast with Joe Rogan, and I was like, man, you know what? I need to try to see what this is about. Because when I think of hypnotism, I think of some dude waving a fucking watch in front of your face or, you know, making you fall asleep or bark like a dog and shit. And I was like, man, you know, I just thought it was bullshit. But I was like, man, I got to see. So I, I, I got to see it for myself. So I went to Vegas and saw the same dude that he saw. And, you know, before uh, the Machida fight, man, I would visualize fights and the after, you know, the, what happens after a fight, it would be so vivid. Like, I would get goosebumps. I would get in a journal in Russia, sitting at the table, eating dinner. You know, I would just kind of zone out in my own world. And, you know, I would just, you know, have physical reactions to things that I was seeing in my own head. So I knew it was real. And then it would, like, manifest in, a, in the fight, like some of the combinations and scenarios and situations. And, you know, I was 10-0. and 0, I was knocking guys out or beating them up really bad. And then for whatever reason, I had gotten away from it and haven't been able to visualize and, and get to that level uh, since then. And I had no, you know, no idea why. I hear Khalil talk about the visualization shit, and I was like, man, I used to do that too. And um, went back there, and it's not like he doesn't wave a watch, you know. What's it like? Um, man, I, he just puts you in like a state of relaxation, uh, to the point where, like, your mind is, is firing on all cylinders. You're just super relaxed. Your eyes are closed, almost to the point where you're asleep, but you still have cognitive thought. Um, and, man, he, you know, you just, like, pick a subject for each se- each session, like like a, a time that, like, the first time that you were ever scared or the first time that you were ever angry or... And then you, you just kind of, like, erase all that stuff out of your mind. Not, like, the situation, but, like, the emotion. Uh, and then uh, we really worked on, like, the visualization part. And, you know, uh, I th- you know I'm, I'm back to that point where, you know, just kind of randomly I'll just, like, zone out and, uh, you know, start thinking about, you know, the fight, my next fight, you know, to the point where, like, you know, I, I can see his haircut. I can smell his breath. You know, I can, you know, feel the sweat, uh, feel the punches. Um, and, you know, it's. Uh, I think that's when I fight my best, when I fought the fight a hundred times before I actually go in there and fight. Then when you go in there and fight, man, there's like you can turn your mind off because it's already pre-programmed. You've already seen it. You've already felt it. You've already experienced all the emotions. And it's... Uh, Man, it's just a crazy thing to, to for that to happen, uh, and the things that you actually see happening in your head happen in real life in the fight. And like, I don't know, like the uh, I don't know if science is is the word for it or how it manifests, but you know, you know, it, it's real and it's happened. And it's happened before, and it's something that you know I had to get back to. Cause I, like I said, it's when I fight my best. Um, you know, I've gotten the reps. It's just like practicing something, and it's second nature. It just happens. It's instinct. It's reaction. It's not like a thought. And um, you know, like I said, that's when I fight my best. And when when I get to that to that point, especially on fight day, like I'll fight the fight ten, fifteen times uh, in the day between the time I get up. I do like calisthenics. I go do sprints. I stretch. Uh, I do all these things, and 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 play the fight in my head and um it's, it's just something that I've gotten away from and, and you know I'm back to it now so 
you know, I'm looking to cash in on another bonus, get another win, and uh, get back in that win column and then go back to 85 and, and uh, make a run at the division. How do you see this fight playing out? Uh, I think I'm going to knock him out, man. Um, Any round? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go out there and, you know, I'm going uh, to be me. You know, fight like I fought Natal, fought like I fought Marcus Perez, fought like I fought Brendan Allen, uh, and just get in there gritty, make it ugly, and, you know, fight the way that, you know, I fight and the way that I like to fight. And, uh, make it a war, stuff his takedowns, and uh, go out there and get a first-round knockout. So kind of just to wrap it up, how has being a father and a husband kind of influenced you as a, as a person, as a man, as a fighter? Uh, man, it's awesome. You know, I was a father before I started fighting, but, you know, uh, you're kind of selfish when it's just you, when you don't have anybody depending on you, when you don't have to, uh, you know, feed or clothe or provide for anybody. You know, it's just you. You can be selfish, you know. Uh, so, you know, when I had my son, it's like, all right, it's not just me. You know, I got to think about this. So I can't be as impulsive, which is, you know, being uh, impulsive is, you know, part of my natural uh, behavior, you know. So you can't be that way anymore, you know, because you're going to get in trouble. You're going to do something you're not supposed to do. You know, you have a son to provide for. And then, you know, I kind of feel like I assembled the Avengers, you know. <laughs> like, I got my kids. They're badass. They watch film. They tell me how to game plan for my opponents. You know, I got my wife, you know. And, she, and she's really the reason I'm able to do this because, you know, I was working a job and training and fighting, and I would come home and just be exhausted, and, you know. And she's like, why are you doing this? Why don't you quit your job and, you know, give yourself two years? And I was going to school to be a uh, get my paramedic license so I could be a firefighter. And she's like, why are you doing that? Just quit your job. You can work at the gym, teach classes, teach private lessons, uh, do the, you know, do uh, sign members up, uh, and just do that. You know, you have the rest of your life to work. Give it two years, and, uh, man, if the shit don't work out, then you go, you know, fucking take calls on the phone and shit. And, uh, you know, she had taught me into doing it. I know it sounds weird, but I was like, man, I got a kid. I got a car payment. I got this, that, and the third. So she was like, all right, how much is it going to cost for you to quit your job? I was like, man, you know, I'm not gonna tell you about all these bills, but I gotta have my car. So I got, <laughs> I, I got, I gotta uh, pay off my car. What so, are you riding? Uh, I was in a Honda and a Accord. So, man, the next day or that night, you know, she went, she wrote a check to pay off my car. We're not even married yet, you know. So she made an investment in me, and it was like, uh, you know, pay off your car. The next day, I went and put in my. My two weeks notice, quit my job, started working at the gym. Two years later, you know, I'm eight fights. This will be my eighth fight uh, in the UFC. So, you know, I guess three years later because we weren't even married yet. But, uh, man, it's just crazy how fast things have materialized. And, you know, when you put the, the right people in the right place uh, in your life, like I said, she made an investment in me, and I'll forever be grateful and you know, I don't feel like I owe her anything because we're doing this together. But at the same time, it's like, you know, these people are out here making sacrifices for you and doing this. So, you know, you owe it to them to train to the best of your ability and do what you need to do and got to do to win fights. And, you know, she's not, I see a lot of these dudes with their wives and they bitch at them for spending too much time in the gym or 
traveling to go train or they're just always up their ass or pick fights with them like the, the day before the fight. And she doesn't do any of that stuff, man. She knows her role. She knows her position. And, you know, the closer to, to, to fight time, you know, she, she does everything. Man. I literally train uh, and come home and, you know, put the kids in bed. She works at night. She cooks. She cleans. She does everything. She's the CFO, CEO, uh, dietit- dietitian, nutritionist, wife, uh, uh, mother. You know, she, she wears all the hats. I just train and fight and, you know, play with the kids, you know. So uh, she's like the, on the chessboard. She is the, the queen, the most powerful piece on the board. And, uh, you know, I got my coach, my training partners. Those are the right, the knights and the rooks and stuff like that. And, uh, man, you know, I just have an awesome team and, you know, kind of excluded all the people that are negative or, you know, bitch or complain or aren't doing anything with their lives uh, out of my life. And as a result, my life has done nothing but that. And uh, outside of the three losses, man, you know, that's just that's just sports. And, you know, it, uh, people go on runs like that. Outside of Khabib and John Jones, you know, everybody has a loss, or has a few losses. You know, there are guys, uh, you know, Dustin Poirier, I don't know his record is, but he's lost a few times, and now he's got the belt, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, it's just part of the nature of the sport, and I think it reveals your true character. You know, I could, you know, Ronda Rousey lost and she quit the game entirely, you know. So, you know, I think it is, you know, how do you handle success and handle life? And I think that outside of me, the people that you surround yourself also affect that. And uh, that's just kind of how, the, like, the team that is around me right now. It's a beautiful story. Um, you can find Eric fighting on UFC on ESPN June 29th. Uh, that's the Nganu Santos card. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram, Eric Anders, at Eric Anders. Yes, sir. You can find Yasmin at yasmin.anders on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. You guys, it, it really means the world that you took the time. Um, I remember, you know, when I first started the podcast, I, I sent you an email, and I think you were probably, I think you responded like four or five hours later. You said, let's do it. And then, you know, we had to figure out, where, when we're going to be like kind of in the same area, you know, I made the trip down, you're in Anaheim, I wanted to make sure that we made it happen, but um, truly you guys are class acts, and uh, it means the world that you took the time to, to do this today. Thank you so yeah, much. Bro, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you. Beautiful.